Hey, y'all. This is Rhonda, B.A. Parker's mom. And a week after the Supreme Court reshaped abortion access, we're meeting people on the ground who are holding out hope for the future. Plus, we're taking a closer look at the body positivity movement. Here's the show. Hey everyone, you're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm B.A. Parker. I'm going to be honest with you, I am tired. I am like mentally and emotionally exhausted. All this past week, I've been reading and talking and thinking about the women and people who may seek an abortion in the years to come and what the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade will mean for them. I scrolled through headline after headline full of words like powerless, inequality, maternal mortality, and it's getting pretty grim. But even as I was scrolling, I also saw and heard things that surprised me and made me feel a little less demoralized. All week, our team's been talking to activists and organizers on the ground, and not one of them said they were giving up. Let's start with Kathy Torres. She's an activist in Texas's Rio Grande Valley. Texas has banned abortion after six weeks of pregnancy, and in about two months, it's possible the state will ban abortions entirely. Kathy still has hope. I mean, it comes in waves. I'll still, I'll have moments where I'm like, okay, like, this is for now. We're going to come out of this. And then I have moments like five minutes later where I'm like ugly crying in the shower. Kathy's response to her state's stance against abortion has been to get one step ahead of her opponents, gather in large numbers, and push. Coming from a border community where we're faced with a lot of state violence in so many different ways, um, we are sort of forced to look ahead and be prepared for what's to come. And this is another one of those moments. So I do feel hope because we are really powerful people um, collectively. We work really well when we're angry and um, we're just used to it. Another activist I talked to is Lorada Lee Wallace. Lorada is 21 and serves on the Board of Access Reproductive Justice, an advocacy group based in California. She's also an abortion doula. An abortion doula is essentially a support person, so a person who helps support um, people through their abortion experiences. And sometimes um, doula support could look like sitting with someone and going to the clinic with them while they get their procedure. It could look like sitting with someone in the comfort of your home or their home after they've taken their abortion pills and seeing them through the um, termination of the pregnancy. Lorada also organizes with Advocates for Youth, which works towards sexual health and justice nationwide. And like Kathy, Lorada is finding glimmers of hope. Take me to a moment when you thought, oh, this gives me hope. Have you gotten there yet? Yeah, I actually have, surprisingly. But I'm, it's coming in waves. It's giving grief. <laughs> I'm like in the grieving right now. <laughs> um, definitely. Um, just even talking to my friends, right? Like a lot of my friends work 
within this work. I have friends who are resource coordinators, friends who are doing like the policy and legislative work, um, advocacy work, friends who are doing like the doula support, people who are like running abortion funds. I was on the phone with one of my friends and she was like, you know, we just need to take a break right now. We need a vacation. But when we come back from our break, what we need to do is offer some type of doula trainings for folks. And I'm like, absolutely. Like, I have the curriculum, all the, you know, because I, I do that. So I'm like, absolutely, let's do it. And she was like, you know, like, a lot of people have hit me up, and this is something that I really am interested in doing. So we're going to be doing that together. And I just think that even in a moment of crisis, I am able to work alongside and know people who are not giving up and are like creative enough to be like, you know what? F them. We're going to do this anyway. Um, and we're going to be making sure that people get this care and support that they need in real time. And that was just one thing of a couple that actually like really gave me a lot of hope and made me feel good. I'm like, oh, we're still doing it no matter what. That's so interesting because I'm, I'm thinking about when I was 21 and the knowledge that I had about abortion was so limited like the most active kind of interactions I would have about it was I would go to the mall like the black kids we would go to the mall and it would always be like a group of like older white ladies with signs and pamphlets telling us not to get abortions and be like ma'am I am getting shoes like what are we doing <laughs> like what are we talking <laughs> Leave about me alone. <laughs> right. they're like you don't want to don't get rid of your black baby I was like this is like we're going to checkers like leave us alone oh my god checkers sounds so good yes (laughs) yeah but like there is like so there's and there's still that kind of mentality but then now there is this there's the movement to roll back abortion access that's been working towards this movement for a long time did it feel like this moment was inevitable i think that I mean, if we really just, and this is a conversation that I've had with folks, if we really even just look at this, the history of this country, right? There hasn't been a time in the history of this country where our reproductive fates, and when I say our, I'm talking about like the most exploited people in this country, which are black women and femmes, brown people, indigenous people, right? Like there hasn't been a time where our reproductive fates haven't been controlled and in the hands of other people. I think that even more so, that is the basis of what this country was founded on. So if you look at it that way, then maybe inevitable, but not in a, oh, this was supposed to happen way. I think that because of certain people's inaction, <laughs> it then became inevitable to happen. But I don't think that this was something that like we couldn't have possibly avoided, right? Especially when we see that like things like the Hyde Amendment coming immediately after Roe v. Wade has passed, right? And like all these anti-abortion bans and restrictions popping up over the last 50 years in states. And again, in some states like Texas or other states in the South or the Midwest, where lots of people didn't even know pre-Roe that abortion was even legal in their state, right? Like even Mm -hmm. before we were having these conversations about Roe being overturned, one of the main questions that I would have from people that I was supporting in their experiences were, is it legal in my state? I don't I don't know if it's legal in my state. Hmm. I blame it on the democratic establishment, but you know, this right now in this decision for me if anything it made me really think a lot about 
the women in my life that came before me, I'm talking about mother, grandmother, and then like also like really distant ancestors who have had their reproductive decisions and choices dictated for them for so long. In your organizing work, how have you been preparing for this moment? Um, right now, and just like really preparing, because um, California's in the middle of legislative session. So, mm-hmm. and kind of getting folks mobilized around our legislative priorities. Another thing that I'm doing and have been preparing for is just the influx of people that I will be supporting and also helping prepare other people for this, right? Um, Mm -hmm. So what I've done with either like in my own personal time and also with Advocates for Youth has been doing um, doula trainings. Mm -hmm. A lot of people are doulas and have been doulas and may not just realize that they, you know, that may have been the role that they played um, in someone's experience and in someone's life. But, you know, training other doulas in this moment because we're going to need more people in this moment than ever to be supporting people in their abortions. So very busy, but especially with the legislative session. (laughs) Um, But it sounds like you're not giving up. I'm not. And I'm not going to. I don't think that this is the time to do so. I think, again, even now more than ever, like the stakes are so high and so important. The biggest part for me was scaling my impact. Like, well, maybe like I can't oust the whole Supreme Court, but what I can do <laughs> is, um, is support people. You personally. Yeah, me personally, right? <laughs> I can't do that. But what I can do um, is share resources with people in my community about abortion to kind of um, demystify um, abortion as a whole, right? And like the conversations that we're having and what I can do is support people in my community who, um, or maybe people who may not be in my community, right? Yeah, I love, I love you talking about scaling your impact because that I think I'm thinking about that now because what's happening seems so big and I feel so small and then you see like and there are like a lot of people who are talking about like this is when you doom scroll and you're on Twitter and they're like we're in a dystopian future about reproductive justice and bodily autonomy and plus with the Miranda rights situation uh, protests are going to be out of hand. And I think it can be easy for folks to sink into that and get really depressed. And this is mostly from me, but like, what advice do you have for those people who are just down? I know. It's, <laughs> I resonate with that. And I'm actually like feeling that really hard. I'm just tired. <laughs> I'm just really tired overall. And I think that a lot of people are. One of the biggest pieces of advice that I got when I started organizing um, from one of my mentors was that if you cannot afford or if you feel like you cannot afford to take a day off or a period to rest because the work is not going to get done, then you're in the wrong movement. Mm. And I was like, I resonate. And that was something that I was told when I was like, what, 15 or 16? And I was like, oh, we're in the for the long haul. We're in it for the long haul. This is just the beginning. Like, this is not as worse as it could get, and this is not as worse as it's going to get. Like, when people start getting, you know, criminalized, or even more so criminalized um, than they already have been for pregnancy loss, when people start dying because they went and um, seeked out, like, really unsafe measures because they were desperate, um, Mm -hmm. 
it wasn't a joke, but I was talking to my friends and I'm like, oh my God, the clinics are closed, but the jails are going to be open. <laughs> the, the clinics are going to be closed, but the prisons are going to be flooded. Um, Lorada. This is horrible, but this is only the beginning. And what this moment needs and requires of us is for us to, to bring our full selves. And you can't bring your full selves if you're not well rested. So I would say, take your time um, and just figure out from there where to move forward. Lorada, thank you for talking with me. Of course. Thank you. I love this. Lorada Lee Wallace is an abortion doula and activist with Advocates for Youth. Now, one thing that stuck out to me from what Lorada said was that no one person is alone when trying to change something. And in that spirit, I want to bring you the voices of other activists from across the country and the advice that they have for how to approach this moment. Talia Charles is an activist with Know Your Nine, as in Title Nine, in Pennsylvania. For her, it's about concrete action at the local level. So I'm going to say divest from national politics and focus on state and local municipal politics. And I'm not saying, like, go out and vote. I more mean, you know, push your city council members to start, like, an abortion, like, a funding source. For Jordan Close, an activist with Ohio's Women Alliance, it's about bringing a wide range of skills and talents into organizing work. If you are good at data entry, you have a spot in this movement. If you're good at creating art, you have a spot in this movement. We need all hands on deck. Um, whatever you can offer to this movement, do that because you are needed and we will find a space for you. And finally, let's go back to where we started with Kathy Torres from the Frontera Fund in Texas. Here's her advice. Allow yourself to be sad and to be scared. We need to feel those feelings. It's healthy, it's important, and try not to do it alone. I guarantee you, you have someone close to you that feels the same. And sometimes echoing tears is like cathartic <laughs> in a lot of ways, so do that. I sound fine and okay, and I'm able to talk about it right now, but I cannot tell you how I'm gonna feel in 30 minutes, and that's normal. So just allow yourself to feel those feelings, and that's also how we'll get through it. We're going to take a quick break, and when we get back, we're going to talk about another thing close to my heart, body positivity and where black women fit and don't fit into the movement. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Dignity Memorial. When you plan your celebration of life in advance, it becomes a gift from you to your family, because nobody should have to plan for a loss while they're experiencing one. With Dignity Memorial Providers, you can pre-plan every detail to give your family and yourself valuable peace of mind, knowing that everything will be taken care of with professionalism, compassion, and attention to detail that is second to none. For additional information, visit DignityMemorial.com. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm B.A. Parker. With all the news this past week, understandably, I've been thinking about bodily autonomy and the loss of feeling like your body is your own. It was actually something I'd been thinking about long before last week's overturning of Roe v. Wade. Because as a larger Black woman, I've always felt like my body wasn't my own. It was something that me and cultural critic Clarkisha Kent had in common. Friends doesn't matter. Everyone always got something to say, right? Yeah. About our body. You know, everybody got their opinion, their input. Never mind you... 
you might have a homegirl where all she eat is hot Cheetos and pink lemonade, and but you worry about me and what I'm doing. Clarkisha has a book coming out in 2023 that talks about navigating the body positivity movement as someone who identifies herself as fat, black, queer, and disabled. So given all that, I thought she might understand. This is the thing I've been asking people because this is a problem mm. that I've had. It's totally illogical. If, yes. you've, if you've taken, have you ever taken like a bus or a train yeah. and a white person has asked to sleep on your shoulder? Not necessarily, but... But I have noticed that people are more, um, they almost feel comfortable touching you Yes, as a fat person. Like, it's weird because they obviously are repulsed by us. Let's, let's name it, right? Mm-hmm. They are repulsed by us for many reasons. But then, you know, now you want to, like, touch on me or, like, lay on me or whatever. Um, I've even faced it in my dating life where... Um, I'm not gonna lie to you. Now, if someone says you're so soft, I'd be so triggered. I'd be so, I'd be so, I'd be so, I'd be so triggered. Oh, that's I'd real. be so triggered. I start like having PTSD flashbacks, like I was in Nam. Like I just be like, like I just triggered um, because four ish out of like the five or so people I've dated in the last two three years, all of them said that at one point, whether it was like the very beginning of us dating. Or it was like during, you know, the middle or towards the end of our tenure together, right? Yeah. Um, always like, oh, you're so soft. And I just immediately start in my brain packing up. Be like, all right, well, our, you know, the stop clock on our relationship has officially started. I don't care to explain to you why. I don't <laughs> like that. I re- You know, I know some people are going to be like, that's so toxic. You need to communicate. No, because <laughs> y'all need to. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm going to say y'all need to. Start policing your own behavior when it comes to fat people and particularly fat women, fat dark-skinned black women, fat dark-skinned queer women. I don't know. It's just something they see that that extra weight. I'm going to put extra around parentheses because who are you to say it's extra weight, white? Mm. Um, but they see that extra weight and, you know, we just turn into like pillows or like comforters, quilts to them. It's weird. You become like... An intimate beanbag chair. Yes. That's that's exactly how I would define it. Ooh. Yeah, the casually, like, they'll start not even thinking about, like, playing with your stomach. Yes. That just triggered, yes. that just triggered the hell out of yes. me. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> um. But it's true. <laughs> it's true. It, you turn into an inanimate object. And that's why some people, they be talking to us the way they do, right? We are an inanimate object to them. Unless we are needed. Because there is this, um, you're either invisible or you're projected hyper. upon. Yes, hyper-visible. There's no in-between. Okay, so how would you define body positivity compared to how it's often presented culturally? I mean, you know, body positivity was invented by black and brown women. It is supposed to actually be what fat liberation is now. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, we're supposed to, you know, be concerned with the, the, the livelihood and the, the conditions of fat people, how they're perceived, how they're treated, and try to change that, right? Mm. And create, yes, 
more positive environment and world for them better than exists currently. That's personally how I would define it. It might differ from the next fat person. But literally for me, it's for the betterment of fat people should be improving our lives somehow, whether that's materially, emotionally, mentally, etc. So um, what it's morphed into now is something that's just unrecognizable for what I would say like the original origins. How so? If I were to be very honest, I think it's more radical origins have been taken and extremely watered down. Um, and, you know, I'm going to get a lot of flack for this. And it's kind of been a way for a lot of thin people, um, thin women, but thin everybody, if it applies, right, to to kind of assess what they don't like about their bodies, which is their right, but this is not the ideology to do it with, if I'm being frank, right? Mm -hmm. um, to assess their bodies and what they don't like about them and thus speak over any and every fat person that this movement would have benefited. Um, I also personally, I think it's strange and I think it's kind of an underhanded way in trying to reconcile the fact that, yes, I'm not as fat as the next person, yeah. but I still feel that there's things wrong with me. Um, that's also why for me, I get very, um, I'm always very on edge when people start discussing things like, let's say, body dysmorphia. Mm -hmm. Because literally, you're a Scooby-Doo villain away from describing fat phobia. Like, if you mm -hmm. listen to a lot of people, no matter what actual size they are, listen to a lot of people talk about their body dysmorphia, mm -hmm. then you're going to start hearing what is essentially internalized fat phobia. They're going to be like, oh, when I look in the mirror, this is bigger than this, or this looks different from this, and et cetera, et cetera. And if you listen closely, you're hearing them express anxiety about fat. potentially, thank you, about being fat or maybe being fatter than they thought they were, you know, things of that nature. Yeah. Um, so I think that's my um, beef with what it's turned into. Um, it's more, it's just, it's, to me, it's now more beneficial to, to thin people or people with um, bodies that are more accepted in the current mainstream than to the fat people that invented it. So those are my thoughts on that. Oh, God, I was going to say something. I was going to say that uh, thin people are now taking up space. Which, right, which doesn't make any sense. <laughs> That's my job. How you going to take my role? Why you took my role? You took, you taking up space for what? That's mine. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a quick break. Let me get back. Whether loving your body is enough to feel safe. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Best Fiends. Why put off having fun for that so-called free time you keep hearing about? You already do enough to earn it. Best Fiends is the mobile puzzle adventure game that gives you a little fiendish fun anytime, anywhere. Customize your team of characters and find even more ways to win with year-round events. Download Best Fiends free today on the App Store or Google Play. Plus, get $5 of in-game rewards when you reach level 5. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Do you feel protected in your feelings of body positivity? Like you have, like this, like loving your body and feeling safe to like proudly exclaim like this love for your body 
do you feel protected in those feelings or, or do you feel like they can immediately be shot down or taken away i am so interested by the fact that you define like you you made a like line of demarcation you're like okay do you love your body but also do you feel safe in your body and i'm glad that you asked it like that mm. because those are actually two separate things mm-hmm. right i can love the f- out of my body for example i love my hips my gut oh it took me a minute to get there but i am there um, now, do I have some bad days? Absolutely. I think we all need to be honest about that. There are some days where I'm just like, I wake up and I'm like, ew. And I should say that to my body, but I do, you know. Mm-hmm. And But for the most part, I'm good. Now, do I feel safe in my body? Very separate question. Mm. And I would oftentimes say no. Um, not because of anything I'm doing to it, because your girl's Gucci, but because of this world that I'm having to navigate. Mm-hmm. So just like you said, people be randomly, like, sleeping on your shoulder. Um, you know, there are stuff that happens in the outside world that I unfortunately have no control over. So, yes, that does threaten my safety. Um, so I would say yes on loving my body, no on feeling safe, because this world is not really safe for us a lot of it is us just trying to carve out that safety as well as we can not just for us but like the next fat person too yeah okay this is a question that i think a lot of folks have about do we use the term fat do we use the term plus size do we use the term plushy i don't know Excellent question. Um, Even within fat circles, you'll hear that often asked. Personally, I use the word fat. I don't think it's a bad word. I think people made it a bad word. Mm -hmm. Because if you think about the associations outside of fat phobic context, you'll start to see where it gets muddled, right? So, for example, when you look at a baby... You see a fat baby, you happy. They're supposed to be fat. They're supposed to be plushy. If you see a thin baby, you you about to notify some authorities because what's <laughs> happening with the baby? Why do they look why do they look like that? What's happening at home? Like you're gonna be very concerned if they are thin. Mm-hmm. Babies are not supposed to be thin, right? Um if you think about positive usages of fat, um in fiction whether or whether it's music tv whatever right you if you hear a fat check that's the positive you like oh i got a big check like i am happy because you know look at all those zeros fat check right yeah if i have a fat i've had a fat that's a nice yeah um those are just a few examples right but fat in itself is not a bad word or a dirty word it has people have tried to turn it that way um, because they themselves don't view fat on the average person in a good light. So then to them, it becomes something that's weaponized or something that's bad. I don't think it's bad. I don't think it's bad. Um, so therefore, I use it. I don't necessarily have an issue with the word plus size, because if that that's what people want to use, that's what they want to use. Mm-hmm. But I do question kind of the etymology of that word, right? Because plus size always infers that there is a regular size. Mm. And what is that regular size? No clue. 
Um, so that's to me why I don't necessarily use the word for myself. I just rather get to the nitty gritty and say fact. Um, because also when I say fact as it should be used and recognized, then you can't, you can't weaponize it against me, mm-hmm. baby, because I already know. I feel like the summer is when I need body positivity the most because you're like you're literally shedding layers yes and um it's being exposed to the world and so I guess I'm wondering how can we navigate body positivity as it stands now and support one another as it stands now I would definitely encourage a return to its origins you know, fat people need to be prioritized Mm -hmm. in the body positivity message, struggle, whatever have you. Um, You know, now because of what has happened in the the ways in which it's been culturally um, gentrified, excuse me, I would rather identify as like a a fat liberation advocate versus body positivity advocate. Mm -hmm. But I think if people want the body positivity movement to have the teeth that it should have, Right. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not all love and vibes and kumbaya. No body positivity, fat liberation needs teeth. Um, Love is not always, you know, love and light. It's not always vibes. Love sometimes needs to get buck because people. Yes, because people are trying you and are trying to enact violence on you or either people that you love and you respect and you want to support. So, yeah, sometimes love got to get buck. So that's how I feel about the body, body positivity movement. Wow, tongue twister. Body positivity movement. That's how I feel. It needs to return to its radical origins. It's, it needs to have teeth. Because positivity, love, sometimes it needs teeth. Sometimes love, positivity needs boundaries. Sometimes violence is also needed, you know, um, to make sure that the people that should be protected by body positivity are protected and are valued and are prioritized. Dang, Clarkish. Thank you so much. No problem. Listen, girl, I be, I be thinking about this. <laughs> Clarkisha Kent is a writer and cultural critic. Her forthcoming book, Fat Off, Fat On, comes out in 2023. All right. This episode was produced by Barton Girdwood, Andrea Gutierrez, Liam McBain, Chloe Weiner, and Janet Ujung Lee. Our intern is Ahianetta Argan. Our editors are Jessica Mendoza and Quinn O'Toole. Our executive producer is Vera Lynn Williams. Our VP of programming is Yolanda Sanguini. And our big boss is NPR Senior VP of Programming, Anya Grunman. Listeners, this is my last time hosting the show for now. I'm going to pass the baton to the next guest host, Anna Sale. You know her from WNYC's Death, Sex, and Money podcast. She'll be in your feed starting Tuesday. As for me, I'm staying at NPR. You can catch me hanging with Gene Demby and the amazing team at Code Switch very soon. So until then, thanks for listening. I'm B.A. Parker. <laughs>